Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 136 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. In this episode, I want to tackle a recent phenomenon in the amazing growth of services that are now available to writers, and that's the emergence of sensitivity readers. And before we get into my conversation with my guest, the sensitivity reader Patrice Williams-Marks, I want to spend a few minutes giving you what I hope will be some helpful context. So some of you may not have even heard this term before, sensitivity reader. So I want to give you a definition and give you a little bit of explanation as to what's going on here. A sensitivity reader is someone who engages with a piece of art, maybe it's a book manuscript, it could be a game, a computer game, it could be a film, some form of art, to try to spot anything which may be offensive or uninformed in terms of portrayals of a particular subgroup within society. So let's unpack that definition a little bit and see what I mean by this. So suppose you're writing a story about a soldier who returns from a tour of duty with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. You might write that character thinking you know how they might react, how they might behave, what their condition means to them, how they might be. You might do a good job of this, but if you had no idea about PTSD or its impact on military personnel, you might get something wrong. You might make an embarrassing mistake, You might say something which is in fact offensive to that group of people. Or suppose you're writing about the experiences of a gay character, or a Native American, or a female astronaut. Now these could be great characters, but do you know how to present them properly? Are you sure that as the writer, you aren't going to write something which is unrealistic or even potentially offensive? Here's where the sensitivity reader, or diversity editor as they're sometimes called, comes in. And I think, in fact, the term diversity editor is probably a better way to describe what these people actually do. The diversity editor will have a direct experience of the aspect of the character that you want to check. So they may be able to comment on your Native American character because they themselves are Native American. Or they may be able to give you input into the experiences and presentation of your African American female character because they themselves are African American and female. So the diversity editor provides another informed view of your work. It's like another dimension to editing, if you like. And that's so far so good with that. But there has been criticism of this kind of review, mainly from people who say that it is a form of censorship and they want to be able to write whatever they like. Now, you'll hear my guest, Patrice Williams-Marks, address this issue directly in our conversation. Patrice is a sensitivity reader, author, screenwriter and playwright who has worked with indie authors, gaming companies and publishers to help them in this area to produce better work. And in this conversation, we tackle this issue of what diversity editors do and don't do for their clients, where a work of art can go wrong in this area. And in relation to all this, we also discuss some of the controversies around this year's Oscar winning film, Green Book. Now, my own conclusion is that diversity editors working in the way that Patrice describes here make a positive contribution to our quest to be better writers and produce great work. Some people think that 
the work of diversity editors is bound up with some kind of political agenda. But I think if you pick the right diversity editor, somebody who is taking the kind of attitude that Patrice does, and she'll tell us a little bit about that in this conversation, then actually what we're going to get from this is an opportunity to improve the work that we're producing. So if you're interested and you want to find out more, including the kinds of problems that diversity editors can highlight, how much it costs to hire one, and when to use one, then keep listening because this conversation is for you. So Patrice, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. And thank you for taking time to speak to us. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and and perhaps to go back and tell us how you started writing. What, what, what were your first experiences of writing and how did you get into that? I actually started writing in elementary school and probably prior to elementary school. Wow, yeah. I, yeah, I remember in the second or third grade, I wrote a commercial for shaving cream <laughs> and showed it to my mother. I don't know why, it's so random. And then in fourth grade, I wrote a book called The Day Snoopy Got Married, and I drew little pictures and everything, <laughs> and my teacher loved it, and she showed it all around school, and I never got it back, unfortunately. Oh, dear. I know. <laughs> and uh, so I've been writing for a long time. Um, when I was in high school, I was on the uh, student paper and um, also in college, I was on the uh, student paper. I did their cable news program as well. Wow, and okay. I took writing classes and joined screenwriting groups. And I believe my first script that I wrote was, this tells you how old I am. <laughs> it was <laughs> for Family Ties, if you guys remember that show. I've heard of it. I wouldn't know exactly its heritage, but I, I've certainly heard heard the name. Well, it's a sitcom, and it starred Michael J. Fox as okay. a conservative kid. And I wrote it, I believe, in the mid-'80s. And I've just gone from there. I, my focus was at first uh, writing uh comedies mm. and, and sitcoms, and then I turned into writing uh, screenplays and dramas, and I did that from 1990 onward, and I had a little bit of success there. I had some uh, screenplays that were optioned where mm -hmm. people purchased the rights to shop them around, that sort of thing. None mm. of them went into production. And then I just wanted to do more with my writing instead mm. of waiting for somebody to purchase a screenplay. Um, I came across a blog by another screenwriter at the time, and he had a uh, blog was kind of pulp fiction type of writing. Sure. Okay. And, and he asked for uh, uh, people to submit short stories along that line. And so that's kind of my foray into uh, writing books. I actually wrote a short story just to send to his blog, and then he ended up selecting it. Then I turned it into an ebook, and then became an author from there. Okay, so it sounds as if you started then with the script writing, and then yes. went into writing stories from there. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to ask you a question, which is a massive subject, probably, but it would be useful if we can kind of have a have a bit of a look at it. They're they're two very different disciplines, aren't they? Script writing and and just writing yes. a a story. Could you could you just talk to us a little bit from your experience about the differences between those two art forms and the different approaches that you take with them? 
Well, I can tell you the difficulty I've had in the transition, even, mm. you know, eight years later, I still find myself having the same issue because I'm such a trained screenwriter, but I can um, at least recognize it now and go back and change it. But okay. as a as a screenwriter, you try to use as few words as possible to set the scene, and you want to show more than tell. Yeah. And with writing as a, a novel or prose, you, it's better to tell, you know, and go mm. into detail. Just saying somebody walked into a room and then you get to the next scene, that'll work for a screenplay, but it won't work in right. a novel. You just have to go into much greater detail. And I find myself abbreviating uh, different scenes when I'm writing, and mm. then I catch myself, and mm. then I have to go back and expound upon it. And so that's one of the bigger differences, and also with formatting and uh, character development as well. Um, you In a book, you can describe a person and, you know, what they look like, how they react to certain situations, um, the way they smell, that sort of thing. Mm, but mm. you can't do that in a screenplay. It all has to be visual. So it's uh, there, there are two different animals. Um, but uh, And I found it difficult at first to transition. But now I'm getting kind of used to it, but I still catch myself mm, going mm. the short route because it's just drilled into you. The shorter, the better. Um, you just need to jump right into the story with the screenplay yes. and use as few words as possible. And it's just the opposite with writing a novel. Now, I know that as well as doing your, your novel writing and your script writing, uh, you've produced plays, you've run film festivals. You, uh, As I mentioned earlier, you've done a whole bunch of stuff. What is it that you think motivates you to be so creative? Where does, where does it all come from, all these, these different things that you, you enjoy doing? Well, the film festivals were actually created through a nonprofit charity that I started in 92, and they were a form of a fundraiser for the charity. Okay. So that's why I started that, because I wanted, I'm a film, I'm a filmmaker myself, I'm not just a writer, I've, mm. I've done um, some photography work, I've produced, um, that sort of thing. And so I wanted to just marry the two worlds with my background in filmmaking, with uh, philanthropy, and the you know nonprofit world. And so, so I said, why don't I just do a film festival, yeah. you know, and um, be able to you know kill two birds with one stone. And so that's how why I did that. And I I just um, I've always been creative. I've always thought outside the box. I've always wanted to work for myself. Mm. I mean, even as a kid, I came up with ways to make money and to create things um, without waiting for my parents to give me money. <laughs> so I've just always been like that. Now, it's interesting what you just said there, because you, you've talked about making money and creating things. Do you, uh, some people I think see those two things as completely incompatible but i presume you don't i presume you you see them as naturally well i don't know do you, do you how, how do you view those two things the kind of entrepreneurial side of what you do and the creative side how do you bring those together well i'm just more comfortable working for myself and mm. being an entrepreneur because 
I don't have to run my ideas past somebody. If I want to do something, I do it. Yeah. Um, sort of thing. And I'm self-taught. I've always been that way. I created my first website in 1996, and I went into an office supply store and and purchased a book on HTML and creating a website because back then <laughs> there was no easy way to create no. it. And so I taught my, I was self-taught and that's just how I'm self-taught with uh, pretty much everything I've done. I was okay. self-taught in creating the nonprofit. Yeah. I just know, I just know um, the questions to ask and who to seek out. You know, that sort of thing. And I just love learning. Okay. So, on a very different subject now, I, think, I read somewhere that you are also, apart from anything else, a foster parent. Or you certainly have been a foster parent in the past. So, I'd yeah. like to just ask you about that. Why did you decide to do that? And what have you learned from that experience? Well, I have... Um, I've always had a dog. Well, I shouldn't say always. I've had a dog in my life probably for the last 18 years or so. That's yeah. very important to me. And I have a lot of love to give. And I don't have any children. And I have a friend who was a foster parent. And she eventually adopted one of her children. Mm. And I saw the ups and downs that she went through and is still going through. Her, her son is now a teenager. But it was still something that I wanted that experience. And she told me there, there's more uh, children that there are proper homes. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? Maybe this is something I want to do. I want to eventually adopt anyway. So why don't I, in the process, learn how to become a foster okay. parent mm -hmm. and uh, go from there? So I, I uh, went through all the training, which is extensive. And I've had, uh, and my focus is mostly on infants and toddlers. Right. Uh, and I've had about, I fostered about eight or nine children so far. Cool. Okay. And what are the what are the things that have really struck you from that experience? What what are the things that you've learned? Patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, and how to be diplomatic. Because as a foster parent, you not only have to work with the agency, mm. but you also have to work with the parents. Yeah. And so you have to meet with them several times a week so that they have time with their child. And you have to kind of walk a fine line of, of um, letting them know that, you know, you are uh, responsible for their child but not letting them feel like they have no control. And so I've learned a few things on how to walk that fine line, and it's worked so far. Okay. So I want to turn now to, to a different subject, and perhaps, perhaps the thing that we're going to focus in the main on during our conversation this afternoon, and that is this issue of sensitivity reading. Now, I know that you are a sensitivity reader, and I wondered if, first of all, you could spend a little bit of time and just tell us what a sensitivity reader does and the, perhaps give us a couple of examples from you, from your own work of the sorts of things that, that you, you've done. Well, I can tell you the first project I ever did was somebody who approached me um, because they had written a video game. 
Okay. Uh, and they wanted me to look at the script because the main character um, was an African American, and they were not. Mm. And they wanted to make sure that the actions of the character, the dialogue, wasn't stereotypical or yeah. misrepresentative or anything like that. And uh, that's that was my very first one. And the script was maybe about 30 pages. It wasn't very long at all, okay. 30 to 50 pages. And basically what I did with, with that is I first asked them exactly what they were looking for with the sensitivity read, if they had some specific concerns um, that they wanted me to address. And then I just went, I read over it, took notes, and then shared those notes with the um, the client and also gave them recommendations, suggestions, and actually uh, links and resources to follow up. Okay. And then they took it from there. So that was my first one. I wonder if you could give us perhaps a definition of what a sensitivity reader is. If some, somebody doesn't know, I mean, there'll be people who are listening to this and they probably think they've never heard the phrase before. Is, have you got a useful definition that you could give us just so that people who are new to this concept are, are grounded in it and understand what we're talking about? Sure. Uh, sensitivity readers are also called diversity editors. So we're basically another tool, you know, for the writer to access. Mm. And basically what a sensitivity reader does, they focus on a niche that they have experience with. Uh, for myself, I'm an African-American, I'm female, I'm a foster parent, I've been in interracial relationships. Those are some of my um, niches that mm. I have experience mm. with. I'm also an animal lover. And so a writer who has written a story uh, with characters that are not like them and that they have no experience with, and perhaps the character or the story situation is set in a world with minority characters or LGBTQ characters mm. or little people or obese people, that sort of thing. If they've written about those type of people and they have no experience, a sensitivity reader uh, will, when asked, uh, read over their material and let them know if anything stands out to them as being a misrepresentation of that individual, uh, if it's racist, if mm. it is something that that character would not do, uh, if the situation would, would or would not have ever happened, um, that sort of thing. And sure. so they, they'll look at that and then they'll write notes and let the individual or the creator of that material let them know um, their thoughts and why they feel that way and then offer resources, suggestions on changing mm. um, the character or the situation and then also uh, give research. At least that's what I do. And then you hand over your report to the person, and then they decide um, what changes to make, if any. One other thing I yes. wanted to mention, it's there's something called the magical Negro syndrome that a lot of people um, write in their screenplays and in their books and so forth. And uh, this person had uh, one of those characters. And basically what a magical Negro is, is somebody who is... Um, 
created. They're all-knowing, all-powerful. They're maybe even mystical in some form or fashion, but they have no backstory of their own. They're simply there to support the Caucasian character. And you can think of uh, Will Smith. He was in a movie called Bagger Vance. Um, that was a magical Negro character. Um, actually, the movie that won Best Picture for um, the Oscars, uh, The Green Book, mm. that had the um, black character in that movie was actually a magical Negro character because he was there simply to teach the white character. And so um, that's something that's repeated over and over again that um, – writers may not even realize they're doing but it's just it, it just shows up in their writing and that's one of the things that I point out and they could either keep it because they like it or they may try to you know alter it mm. or or give the minority character a little more depth and more of a reason to be in there other than just to support somebody else so just to pick up on some of the things you said there it sounds as if, um, like we're dealing with this issue that you just mentioned, this magical Negro syndrome problem. It sounds as if giving the character context, depth, nuances, say, will help to solve that. Is is that correct? Yes, that's exactly it. Okay. And it, it also occurred to me from what you were saying that although your your client that you were talking about earlier had a lot of issues to deal with, with with their script. Perhaps one of the things in their favour was that they were at least willing to ask questions and at least willing yes. to be challenged. Yes, and you know, I thanked him so much for that. I really appreciated it. Even though it was hard for me to read, I appreciated it that he thought enough to mm. seek somebody out, mm. you know, to look it over before you know, uh, before publishing it. Now, I don't know what changes he's made, if any, because that's totally up to him. Sure. But from our feedback, um, I am I know that he's made some changes. Okay. One of the things that struck me as well, just, just listening to this, I suppose people who have some clue about uh, the work that sensitivity readers do might think, okay, you guys are all looking at the issue of race and racial stereotypes and characters, and you're looking perhaps at gender but my sense is that it's actually much broader than that, that you might have a sensitive reader who would look at things like people with different faiths and how they would engage yes. and how they could be, or even like foster parenting, the thing that you talked about. Um, I know, I think somewhere I read as well that you have some experience of and can give some wisdom on writing about characters in a situation where they have end of life care. So so there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch, there's, there are in fact, from what I can see or read, a whole bunch of situations that you could usefully use a sensitivity reader in. Yes, if you have a main character or a community uh, that is somebody you're not familiar with, then a sensitivity reader, just look at them as another editor, you know, somebody who's actually walked the walk and talked the talk mm. and, and uh, that will share their knowledge and their experience. Like I said, if you write about LGBTQ, characters if you're a little per if you write about little people um if you write about animal lovers if you if your main character is a muslim you know anything like that you can find a sensitivity reader 
um, in those type of niches. Okay. So you, you've talked here about a couple of occasions where you've engaged with writers and um, it sounds as if you've had quite a positive engagement with them. If yeah. I was, um, I'm writing a story, uh, where in my writing process, in my creative process, should I engage with a sensitivity reader? Well, I think the best time to come is after you've written uh, at least your second draft when it's okay. really shaping up to be close yeah. to what it shouldn't be the first draft because there, I mean, you're going to make some major changes and, you know, swings. Um, but And it shouldn't be the final draft because you're ready to produce, you're ready to, you know, to uh, deliver it. And major changes may really put you behind schedule if you decide to um, take on those changes. Mm. Okay. Uh, let's suppose I'm, a, I'm writing a story and I have a an Hispanic or a character or a black character or a gay character or whatever it is and I am not from that heritage I'm not that kind of person but I do have let's say I have a friend who is from that background and I would like their help how do I positively engage with them and respect what they do so how do I give value for what somebody's going to do and I'm asking this question because I have spoken to um, people a, a diverse range of people in the past and they have they've said quite rightly that it's important to give value when, as a writer, you're helped by people with this sort of thing. Well, I don't know. Uh, there's there's different things that uh, many people consider a value, either mm. monetary or acknowledgement in their book. But I, I definitely, if somebody has a friend that uh, fits the character, I would definitely ask them to read the book. But I would make sure that you have the type of relationship where you won't be upset mm. by feedback and you're willing and, you know, open to uh, criticism yeah. because friend will not sugarcoat things <laughs> <laughs> and, your, and, and your friend may not give you resources for change. They may just tell you how wrong you are. Yeah. And if, and if that's all you need and you're good with that, then that's better than, you know, not doing anything at all. But if you want completely non-objective and you um, would like uh, resources and, a, a, you know, something like a full report, that sort of thing, then it would be good to engage a sensitivity reader. Mm. I'm, uh, I, it, what you are saying is making me think that there are benefits to having a professional relationship with somebody to do this. Yeah. Yes, I think so. It's I, I certainly would not discount a friend. They're definitely someone I would use, but you just have to consider the type of relationship you have with them. If their <laughs> if their reviews on your book will alter your friendship, uh, type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I I've had friends read uh, screenplays of mine and not as sensitivity readers, just mm. were giving each other feedback. Mm. I actually had a friend who just pointed out everything negative and I just quit asking him to read my screenplays because he didn't know how to point out what he enjoyed and what he liked. It yeah. was just yeah. a negative fest without any feedback on, you know, positive changes to make. Sure. And, so, you know, just take that into account. Yeah, that's wise advice really, isn't it? Because otherwise, I guess art is everyone's art is a sensitive thing isn't it and, and, yes, and it is. people can get 
get upset pretty quickly with this kind of stuff. Yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so there's a, well, two or three scenarios that I'd just like to run past you, which are connected with, with the, this issue, where situations where people might have a particular challenge that they need to deal with. I just wanted to, wanted to get your opinion on this. So first of all, if a story has only a few characters in it, may, a story might have uh, just one African-American character or one Jewish character or one... Uh, I don't know, a, a Chinese, Han Chinese character or something like that. How should the writer in, in, engage with that character in the story, develop that character, but avoid the problem of tokenism, avoid the problem of, of because something's happened to that one single character from that one single background, it can tend to suggest that, that they're being biased in some way. Well, that's a good question, and I can't give you a definitive answer sure. on that. I would say first to just look at them as any other character. Don't look at them as, okay, this person's from the ghetto or this mm. person's from, uh, I don't know, you know, the inner city or someplace sure. like that. Maybe just create them as a normal person and, uh, and how they relate to your other characters. And be sure not one thing that um, we sensitivity readers and also – um, people, um, African Americans. This is an example. Mm. Not not referring to a black character just by the color of their skin, um, and then not referring to the other characters by their skin color. Uh, okay. Because sure. then it just relegates that character to their skin color, and like that's their definitive characteristic. Whereas actually, that shouldn't be their definitive characteristic. There, there should be other other features to them. I mean, yes. I'm, I'm I'm particularly interested in what you said there about you just write them as a normal person. So mm. it sounds to me as if sometimes people are trying too hard to not write yes. characters just as ordinary human beings. Yeah, and actually, that might be a good thing to do, whatever their background. Yes. Exactly. Okay, so here's a different one, uh, just to, to to try on you. But if I had I don't think there's going to be an easy answer to this one either. I'm, I'm sorry about this. But if I have a story with um, uh, people from a variety of different backgrounds, let's have a real mixed bunch of characters, and they may be, it may be they're from a variety of racial, racial or religious or, or gender backgrounds or whatever it is. Do I need to get all of those aspects checked out to, to really do the job properly? Well, I think it all depends on how they relate to the story. Okay. how their characteristics relate to the story um, and, and, and how you how you described your default Caucasian characters. So however you describe your default Caucasian characters, that's how you should describe um, your other characters as well. So you mm. can be as, as elaborate or as you know short as possible, you know in descriptive. Sure. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I take your point about you wouldn't just describe a character as being black if you don't actually refer to the skin tone of any of the other characters and the skin color of any of the other characters. Um, yeah. But then if I was if I was writing a story, I would want to appropriately make my reader aware that a character is from a particular racial background pretty quickly, because in real life, if I met somebody from that background I would under I would see and understand that they have a certain kind of background immediately 
because I can see visual evidence of it. So how do you deal with that appropriately in, in written work? Well, if, uh, if it's a black character, um, you may want to um, identify them using a name that is considered black, like Leroy, Tamika, you know, that sort mm, of thing. Mm. You would automatically know or describing the character by um, her braided hair you know, type mm, of thing. Mm. Um, that's a way of letting us know. Or the person's name is Maria. We automatically assume, assume she's Latina. Yes, you yeah. Know, that sort of thing. So just finding, uh, and this makes you uh, delve deeper into the character instead of just slapping on um, the person's race and not dealing mm, with mm. them as a full flushed character and so that's what i love about it okay. it just forces you to create you know more of a full person by describing them in other ways other than their skin yeah. color so i know i am doing this completely on the fly i'm just thinking of things that mm. ways to get to grips with this so would it be appropriate for example um to talk about a character and and to say for example uh, character x was uh, one of the first people from an Afri African-American background to be a consultant surgeon in that in a particular area, for example, something. So, oh, yes. so you're grounding yes. them in a particular thing like that, or, you know, they, they were one of the first black women in who, who to become an astronaut or some, that sort of. Yes. Or even set that within dialogue mm. of yeah. another character referring to that person. Mm. Okay. So, so then it doesn't become just a kind of, you've labeled somebody in a kind of blunt yes. way, but it, you've woven it in. I mean, I suppose this is good practice anyway for, for the craft of writing, isn't it? It's just you weave yes. things in, you weave in the information that you want to present. Okay. Yes. So what if, uh, and this is this is a little bit more tricky, this is a bit more gritty perhaps in some ways, but if I, my story includes characters who have been the victims of uh, some kind of trauma, so perhaps sexual abuse or maybe they're, they've got, a veteran with PTSD or the, or the children who lost their parents when they were very young, like these kinds of things. How do I find the people who can help me to make sure I present those kind of characters in an authentic and respectful way? Well, there are uh, sensitivity readers in a lot of niches. However, something that specific, I have a database on uh, one of my websites where um, it's slowly growing right now mm. where working sensitivity readers add their information so oh, okay. people can find them. However, we do not have anybody in that particular um, genre or niche, I should say. So what I would do in that case was would be to look for a counselor or a therapist who deals mm. with uh, trauma and uh, working with families and children and ask them, to personally uh, read your material and offer to pay them for it and tell them oh, okay. what exactly you're looking for. I mean, from them and from their expertise. Yeah, that's interesting. So so in this case, you're not going to the people that have directly experienced the thing that you're writing about, but you're going to people who almost have mediated in that way. They have they, They've engaged with people who have experienced those problems. Yes, because it would be hard to, if you can find somebody, um, but I, I would think that would be difficult uh, to find someone unless you know them personally, mm. experience that mm. deep sort of trauma and then asking them, is this authentic? Um, it would just be 
in my opinion, I could be wrong. It'd just be, you know, in my opinion that it would be easier to find a, a therapist or a counselor yeah. who has uh, dealt with that. And sometimes even uh, those type of, uh, you know, care providers have experienced some of the same trauma mm. that they're helping other people with. So you might yes. get to one experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that, that is possible. Um, so you mentioned there that you have a database. It sounds like it's a gradually growing database of um, sensitivity readers. If if we'll, We will talk at the end of this conversation about some of the services that you offer and how people can get in touch with you. But specifically on that, if people want to, who are listening to this, want to go and check that out right now, how would they do that? How can they, how can they locate and access your, your sensitivity reader database? Okay, this is it. Mm -hmm. It's... Uh, sensitivityreviews.com forward slash certified and certified is in all lowercase okay and uh, this database is for people who are working sensitivity readers and so they can contact me through the website and give me their background and then I can add them uh, to the database, okay. but I also add people who have gone through my uh, sensitivity reading course sure. and graduated through it. So it, you can get in, get in it, uh, you know, several ways. Sure. So if people are looking for the services of an appropriate sensitivity reader, they can go to that list. Is that is that correct? Yes. And right now, it's not a very large list, but it is growing. Okay. Um, and conversely, people who perhaps feel they have relevant experience, perhaps niche experience that they could offer advice on uh, and they would like to explore the possibility of being sensitivity readers, can they contact you and see whether they can get onto that list as well? Well, the list is not for uh, people who think they can be. They have to already be working sensitivity okay. readers and experienced. That's fine. And um, after I speak with them and, you know, verify that then they can be added. So people people who are just beginning to think about this would be better to think about how they train appropriately or think about... They yes. have, they're a few stages back from being on your list, aren't they, from the sound of it? Yes, because this is basically a recommendation sure. and we can only recommend people that we know have the experience. Okay. Now, there will be some people who will say, I'm not sure I can afford a sensitivity sensitivity reader. Uh, and I will I'll be asking you in a moment a little bit about how much it perhaps it might cost to, to hire a sensitivity reader. But there'll be people who are, they haven't got any money, say, and they really don't know whether they could afford it. Are there some simple common sense things they can do? Or are there resources online or perhaps in print even that they can use anyway to help them to, to at least try and get, get some of this right? Yes, definitely. Um, if there, there's, there's uh, several places, but one of the best ones I would recommend is Reddit. Mm. And I would go to one of the um, authors or writing uh, subreddits. And I've actually seen people post saying, I'm a writer. I've got, a, I've got an Asian character. If somebody here would be willing to read my material, I'd appreciate it. And they get responses. Okay. Yeah, so, and they can also post if they have a Twitter account, Facebook, 
and they, you know, even if it's their first book, they can say, hey, it's my first book, it's my second book, I've got this character who mm. is a gay character, and I really um, need someone to read over it who's experienced with this, you know, can you help me out sort of thing. And they'll be able to find people for free um, mm. to for their material for sure. them. Okay. Uh, and Reddit, for people who are unaware of Reddit, that's... Uh, that's R E double T I I T, I think, isn't it? Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Dot com. Dot com. And then, yes. And then you just do a search on writing or authors, and you'll find certain groups where you'll see people actually posting those exact questions. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, you'll be able to find help online. So, uh, we've talked about people who may feel they can't afford the services of a sensitivity reader, but. um, this may be like how long is a piece of string, this question, but how much then does it cost to hire a sensitivity reader? Well, it depends on their experience. Uh, sensitivity readers um, going through my program and they're just starting, I recommend they offer their services for free to okay. at least five, five authors so that they can get experience under their belt and then they too can ask uh, for feedback from mm. the writer. And after they have a few under their belt, and they would advertise this through Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, any way um, they could online on their own blog. And once they have the five, then um, they can start charging. And the average, it depends on if it's a short story. Um, I've seen other sensitivity readers charge like for 1,000 words, $25. Okay. For up to 10,000 words, I've seen um, $100. And then I've seen some w- will read full novels for $250. Um, but, it, but it varies. And then those that have done it for a while and that um, read for publishing houses, you know, their fees mm. can, can you know, reach up to 1000 Okay. Okay. Now, um, we referred briefly to the film uh, Green Book earlier on. And yes. uh, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about this, just be- because it's fairly topical. Uh, this, this film, um, I mean, people who are listening to this in the future, uh, we're recording this in March 2019. So uh, Green Book won Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars yes. this year and that inevitably meant it, 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 it has come under some scrutiny and for those who don't know the story focuses focuses I think on a black classical and jazz pianist Don Shirley and his white Italian bodyguard and driver and uh, the film's come into some criticism for some criticism for misrepresenting the relationship between those characters and also advancing and promoting a white saviour narrative so I wondered if you had any sort of personal reflections yourself on the film on any of the shortcomings in it well i did see the film and i actually liked it there were some things that i think could have been improved but i did like it you're right it does have the white savior Uh, the character the shirley character was there specifically to teach frank uh, about racism and acceptance, that sort of thing. And what I would change about it, it's kind of hard. 
Well, I guess the first thing I would change is actually show the green book. They did not show it once in the movie. And, mm. uh, and the green book basically was a book that African Americans used when traveling through parts of the North and the South. And it showed them what restaurants would accept them, where they could sleep safely at night. It told them where, you know, where they had to stay off the roads at night, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. And it basically saved a lot of uh, people's lives and saved them from harassment, you know, at the very minimum, that sort of thing. And I that was very important. I believe that issue of that book and the, you know, the this, you know, historic, you know, accuracy of the book, it should have been addressed and they should have at mm. least shown it. Mm. Um, but instead they just, you know, referred to it and allowed um, Shirley to stay at these kind of rundown hotels when in fact um, African-Americans owned and operated some very upscale and nice places to stay. Mm. Yet that movie just showed them as run down and old. And um, that was that was completely um, inaccurate. Sure. So that's what I would change. Um, and as you said before, the white savior syndrome. But I did like the relationship between the two characters, mm. and I think it was a movie worth seeing. Okay. So yeah, we have referred to this white savior narrative, and again, some people might not be very clear. Um, I don't think I'm 100% clear on exactly what it means. So I wondered if you could just explain for us what that means, what the what people are referring to when they're making that particular criticism of this film or any other piece of art. Well, it's basically um, black people living their lives but not being able to overcome a certain situation and then having somebody, Caucasian, come in and solve the issues for them like they're the only ones that can mm. solve for the black community. Mm. And an example of that is any movie where a uh, white character is a teacher and they come work in a urban school and they, uh, they become the savior for the students mm. in the class, mm. you know, that sort of thing. That's, that's what's considered white savior. So, and, it, and I can, see why some people might see that as a inauthentic cliched perhaps yes thing. It is. um and is that is is that the problem i'd i'd be interested to kind of dig into this a little bit is it a, a problem of art in that it's cliched it's unimaginative it's not authentic is it also and or is it also a problem that it is implying some kind of powerlessness or helplessness on on the part of the other characters i'd say it's all the above okay and it's it's also implying that the subservient characters which they always are not just labeled but shown as they can't do for themselves they don't have the mental mm. capacity sure. to change and learn or rise above and sometimes they're even shown as just being ignorant and there's a i love watching movies from the 40s and 50s and 30s uh, even though i see you know so much that is offensive mm. i try for what i like you know because uh, with those with those movies you know if there is a black character they're always 
subservient, they're buffoonish, you know, they're ignorant, mm. they're they're the sidekick for laughs type of thing. Um, but uh, the movie that I guess uh, the type of movies that would that come to mind, you know, after you would ask this question was the movies of the great white hunter who goes to Africa and then the Africans mistake them for the Messiah and mm. they bow down and they rule they they rule the African tribe. And that's um, that type of scenario has been repeated over and over again, even in uh, movies, not in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even in a movie from the you know 80s, uh, Indiana Jones. Yes. Yeah. You know, they have the same characteristics of the uh, Russians lording it over the Egyptians and also um, the Russians lording it over, you know, the African tribe or the indigenous people. You know, so, yeah, that that's something that's kind of a it's something that's uh, offensive to me. And and presumably it is just the kind of problem that you would be able to spot and would be on the lookout in in the work that people will show you. Yes, I haven't come across uh, white savior situations yet. I've come across everything else, <laughs> but actually not that okay. in the materials that I've written so maybe maybe that's just become um, it people become more aware of yeah yeah well maybe maybe that's a success story and that people now realize that that is that it's it's, it's just bad on every level it's bad for, for all of the various reasons that, that we've discussed yes I mean a few do sneak out but uh, I don't believe it's as commonplace as it was before now again just just digging into this subject I want I wondered if then in that case, if somebody if somebody is writing uh, some work and they have a, a character who is uh, from a diverse background, from a minority background, or they, they might be gay, they might be black, whatever they are. But actually, because the story requires it, the white character needs to help or support or give assistance to that other character for, who's from a diverse background. But but we're all you know we all want to be we all want to address this seriously and we want to be sensitive to the things that we've been talking about here. So how would we do that? How can we how can we serve the necessity of our story, but not patronize characters or get this wrong? Well, I'm sure if they really think about it, they can figure that out. But one suggestion would be to have the shoe on the other foot as well. A white character supporting the black character, then later in the story having the black character or the gay character or Jewish character support the yeah. uh, white okay. character in some sort of way. So just do a role reversal within mm. uh, you know the confines of the story. That's interesting. So so maybe one of the ways to appropriately tackle this is to have different people are helping each other at different times through the story there is almost like a kind of community of people and they can they can help different people can help each other a helps b b helps a a helps c c helps a whatever during the course of the whole story yes definitely and another uh, pitfall they may want to avoid as well is having uh, the minority or um, other type of character um the mar what we consider a marginalized group 
mm. having each person die and be sacrificed for the white character. Yeah, yeah. Something. There was a big upheaval online with one of the Hunger Games where the only you know black character was a young little black girl who gave her life, you know, for the mm. cause mm. sort of thing. And that scenario was repeated over and over and over again with um, black characters. So that may be something they want mm. to avoid as mm. well. Yeah, that's in- that is interesting. Yeah, it's... And I'm not saying, you know, minority characters shouldn't be killed off. I mean, uh, I just finished a book that's going to be released next month, and, you know, I killed off a few, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But but I bet you've got others that don't die. I guess that's the point, isn't it? that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, That that may be the difference, you know. (laughs) There's another, another question I wanted to ask you, really just to get your opinion, because I've read some criticism of sensitivity readers and this criticism uh, tends to be focused around people who say well I wouldn't use a sensitivity reader or I don't like them or whatever because they're censoring my work or they would be censoring the work that they're reading I wondered if you could just speak to that and and comment on that as a and and just give us a response to that well I've read that too and I think their arguments are that I want to write what I want to write. No one's going to tell me, you know, what to write. Mm. I feel it's it's a matter of freedom of speech. And for those writers who don't want to work with a sensitivity reader, I'm I say go for it. You don't have to. It's completely optional. But for those people who see the value of sensitivity readers who are for lack of a better word, are um, sensitive to how they portray other people other than themselves, then they would do well to consider, you know, finding a sensitivity reader mm. to look over their books. Mm. And I believe the people that are, you know, that um, are the loudest online, they don't like uh, the fact that someone's telling them not to write a certain they feel that someone's telling them don't write something that's in your not in your wheelhouse don't write about a gay character or a black character if you're not black and that's not what sensitivity readers are no. saying just saying if you do write about these characters please don't go by stereotypes and misrepresentations mm. of them mm. that you may be blind to but people who actually walk in the shoes of characters that you've written can look at and see mm. as plain as day, that sort of thing. And I also try to explain it this way, too. It's just another tool for screenwriters to use. It's an mm. option. And it's also something they don't, even if they engage a sensitivity reader, they don't have to make one change. Sure. Sure. They can just see and disagree with every single change and then move on and uh, publish it as usual. Now, there are some books that I'm I'm hoping that, that I've read. I'm hoping that they did make the changes because there were some serious changes and they would probably face some backlash online mm. um, for being so insensitive to um, the characters they've written. Mm. Mm. Um, but if that's not a concern for uh, people who don't want to use it, then they don't have to. Nobody is forcing them to. Sure. And I suppose one of the one of the responses to that that criticism might be 
for us to reflect on what you said earlier on in this conversation where you were talking about your engagement with one of your clients and you said that you do give them review and critique but you don't judge them and it's entirely up to them what they then do with that advice you're not you're not forcing them to take the advice that you've given yes and i never try to make them feel small or make them feel as if they you know that what they've written is ridiculous or in sense oh i shouldn't i do tell them that some of their uh some of the things that they've written i may have used the word um, this feels insensitive type of thing. Mm. I never say you are insensitive. No, I understand what you're saying. Fight, yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, because I appreciate, I appreciate it. And I think it's an honor to read other writers work and for them to seek me out, um, because they, you know, value the opinion of, um, somebody who, you know, fits the, you know, the characters or people mm. that they're reading about. You know, I just think um, they're pretty amazing people for uh, doing it. Okay. Uh, now, it could be that people are lis- listening to this think, hey, I, I'd, I'd love to be a sensitivity reader. We've, we've alluded to this point briefly already. Um, mm-hmm. But I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about well, two things. One, what do you think are the qualities that a sensitivity, sensitivity reader should have? And two, how should somebody go about becoming a sensitivity reader if that's what they want to do? Yes, well, I think most sensitivity readers out there right now are also authors and writers, yeah. but you don't really have to be one, but it's a good start. You should have some sort of writing background. You should have at least a, a you know a blog or someplace that you post to on a regular basis mm. if you're not an author or a writer. And then you should um, sit down and write down Um, all of your life experiences in short sentences, you know, who are you as a person? What are your interests? And write those down. And if any of those align with a specific niche that you believe is needed by uh, sensitivity readers, then you should go for it. Um, But you should also be a business-minded person. You should be someone who um, is an entrepreneur, someone who is willing to start their own business and be professional about it to meet deadlines, send out contracts, you know, that sort of thing, write write reports. Um, and you have to also be willing to, you know, market your services, that sort of thing. And you also have to be, uh, I think, uh, somebody who just genuinely likes people and likes to read Hmm. and you're helpful. If you're somebody who already, leaves reviews on Amazon because you just want to help people um, or you post something on YouTube um, be, you know, sharing your experience, then you're ripe for being a sensitivity reader because you're already in that mode of, of helping people. Yeah. Okay. And Yeah. And to get started, um, I do have a free course. It's a seven day email free course that people can go to. And it outlines um, basically what I just said and gives you some, you know, workbook assignments to let you sure. um, discover for yourself if you believe you have the tools necessary to be a sensitivity reader. Okay. So we're coming to the end of our conversation now, but if people have listened to all this and they, they, they maybe want to follow up with you about some of the things that we've talked about, specifically just 
for you said just now maybe they're interested in becoming a sensitivity reader or they'd like to explore the option of hiring you as a sensitivity reader for them for their work how would they find out more about you and how would they get in touch with you well you can find me on my website it's patricewilliamsmarks.com and that's p-a-t-r-i-c-e williams and then marks is spelled m-a-r-k-s dot com and then you'll see uh, one of the tabs at the top of the page says sensitivity reader you can okay. click on that and that'll tell you all about me what i've done who's hired me i have some some actual uh, reviews from uh, people that have hired me okay and then and then if people want to uh, become a sensitivity reader or at least look into becoming one, they can go to sensitivityreviews.com, and that's with an S at the end. And from there, they can uh, sign up for the free course. I do have some paid courses that are much more extensive and that you get certified at the end of the course mm. and uh, you're able to become a working sensitivity reader um, but you start out doing the free course and it's seven days and after the seventh day you'll know if it's something you want to do or not and then you can proceed as you know as you see fit so is, patrice is there anything else that you want before we finish is there anything else that you wanted particularly to say maybe about this issue of sensitivity reading or anything else Yes, I would just say, you know, look at a sensitivity reader as a partner, as another tool, yeah. not as an adversary. Sure. The person is there to help you, to support you. That's it. And if you can't afford one, you can definitely find people on Reddit or ask people that are friends of yours or family members that fit um, the character that you created in your book or your screenplay. Yeah or what have you, your marketing materials, and have them take a look at it if you can't afford to hire one. Sure. And go from there. It's just uh, another way for you to write. It's, for, it's another way for your writing to become better, to become deeper and more authentic. Okay. Well, Patrice, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for sharing all of this Thank wisdom you. and insight with us. And it's been it's been a good conversation and thank you for your time. Thank you. You have and, a good evening. And you have a good day. Bless you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.